This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Um, as many of you know, my name is Richard Hecht, and um, I'm a faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies, and I'm chair of the Herman P. and Sophia Taubman Endowed Jewish Studies um, program committee. And before I introduce our very distinguished guests, um, um, I want to ask your help with something, and that is um, we'd like to get more people onto our electronic um, mailing list. So if you are not on the Herman and Sophia Taubman mailing list, as you leave tonight, we would very much appreciate it if you could um, um, give us your email addresses and your names, and that way we'll be able to stay in much better contact with you. There are uh, clipboards um, at the table as you exit um, the, um, the theater. Also, tonight, we're going to use questions, and you, many of you have the 3 by 5 cards and the golf pencils. I didn't know that they were called golf pencils until Kelly Coleman Moore told me that they're golf pencils, but you have cards and golf pencils. And at the end of um, our um, visitors' presentations to us, uh, if you have questions, please write them down and pass them to your left, and our student staff people will pick them up um, in the aisles. So pass them to your left. Um, now, Dennis, uh, Mc uh, David Makovsky and Raith Alamari are by no means strangers here. They are um, people who have visited our campus and they have enormously enriched um, our student body and our, our community. Um, I have prepared a formal introduction um, to them um, but I'm not going to read it to you, and I'm going to tell you about one of the most phenomenal things I have seen in my four-plus decades of being a faculty member here at UCSB. Earlier today, there was the second part of a two-part uh, program uh, of peace negotiation simulation between Israelis and Palestinians, and the focus of that discussion was on the borders of a future state of Palestine and a, the state of Israel. It was the most extraordinary thing I've seen where the students took the roles of Palestinian uh, negotiators uh, and then it ended um, in a very optimistic way with uh, um, the heads of the Palestinian national um, delegation and the Israeli national delegation reaching a solution on the problems of uh, the borders. It was so fantastic because these two individuals, Raith Alamari and um, David Makovsky, have enormous skills in terms of understanding the issues of Israel-Palestine, of analyzing the issues of Israel-Palestine, um, and there are really no better people that I could imagine uh, to join us now at this very important moment uh, to take up the topic of a new administration and new policy, how changes in Washington could impact Israelis and Palestinians. So I want you to join me in welcoming David Makovsky and Raith Alamari 
back to UCSB, back to our community um, to help us understand the complexities of this enormously important problem. Please welcome David Makovsky and Ray Palomar. Thank you very much, Richard, and uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, we love coming back here. Usually the, the weather in the east is frigid, and the weather here is just so beautiful and sunny. A little rainier this week, but uh, it's still always a, a warm welcome from at UCSB, and I want to thank Richard and um, colleagues for making it so. And uh, it is really a treat for us to run these mock negotiations uh, where we really get a chance to... Uh, have some role reversals and have the Jewish uh, students are on the Palestinian negotiating team and the Palestinians are on the Israeli team. And I could report that we are now taking the UCSB model on the road. And we're going to be doing it at Yale University uh, later this semester. We have some other campuses also lined up. And it really started right here at UCSB. So um, I think this is our, I don't know if it's our sixth year of doing it. But uh, the students are very engaging, and we're, again, the, the, the warmth of the hospitality is wonderful. So where are we uh, in this issue? Um, look, I was on the U.S. negotiating team uh, in, um, when uh, Secretary of State Kerry uh, was leading it in 2013 and 14. And I would say that this was the third major effort by the United States to try to hit what I would call the home run ball, uh, which is Bill Clinton tried in the year 2000, uh, Condoleezza Rice tried it in the year 2007 and 8, at an Annapolis conference follow-on meetings with uh, Prime Minister Olmert and President Abbas, and Secretary of Kerry tried to do it uh, with uh, President Abbas and Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, you know, I think the good news was that the leaders, I do think, want a deal. The not as good news is that they want to deal more on their terms. And the Venn diagram here um, does not exactly converge sufficiently on the five core issues. I'd say two of the five, there was hope. Uh, I could see a breakthrough on the borders, on refugees, but I think on the issues of Jerusalem, uh, on the issue of uh, mutual recognition, do you accept the character of the other side's state? And on the issue of security arrangements, which was particularly difficult coming after the second intifada, the second uprising, and the Arab Spring aftermath, where there's been a kind of a, a meltdown of the Arab state system in many countries. Um, this issue, the security, which if you read the literature in Arabic and Hebrew and English of the Camp David participants, was the easiest of these, of these core issues to solve, became the hardest. And it really shows about how developments in the region have really uh, hardened to, um, to make some of these things um, very difficult. I would say we tried the front door, the side door, the back door, the window, the basement, and the chimney uh, looking for solutions. But, you know, whenever you try to hit that home run ball, the odds of you striking out are greater. These were noble efforts. But ultimately, um, the leaders are not, in my view, there's too many constraints on them to, to do what I call the five for five, solve all these problems. And um, what did Albert Einstein say? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. 
But I feel that uh, my takeaway is that, you know, the, um, there's, whenever it's all or nothing in the Mideast, it's nothing. And my takeaway is, if you remember one sentence that I say here today, it's, it's time for some solid singles. Uh, we need a direction, even if we don't reach the destination. We have to find a way to get publics to believe. Uh, I mean, I'm worried about college students. I've spoken at over, uh, I made over 125 college visits, believe it or not. And I worry about this generation of college students a lot because I feel that Wraith and I, you know, have been involved in the 90s when there were the good times of this roller coaster. There were a lot of ups at the Madrid Peace Conference of 91. Uh, I was there as a journalist. 93, the handshake on the White House lawn between Rabin and Arafat, choreographed by Bill Clinton. 1994, the peace treaty of Jordan and Israel. So I have a reservoir of experience to draw upon that helps me get over these tough times. But I realize that college students today weren't even born, some of them, in 1994. Or if they were born, they were just barely born, and they certainly have no memories. So it makes me feel that I worry that the millennials are going to be the first ones to give up on this whole issue. And that, that's, why, that's what keeps me going to these campuses, because I want to say that you know, having been in the negotiations, I see where we, we got close, and I see that each side realizes this is not a giveaway to the other side, but they feel that they need to, they're doing it for their own self-interest, which I think is good, um, to try to reach a deal for self-interest, because that's what's sustainable is self-interest. So what does that mean now for um, a Trump administration going forward? And here, you know, look, there's a president who prides himself on unpredictability, so we would be foolish to make grand prognostications and grand extrapolations. It's more take it day by day, um, and so we have to have a level of humility about this. Uh, but I do think that the early signs are that he is more... Um, the early signals is that on certain key areas, he's, he fits more into the traditional approach than he would admit to. Um, I, would, I think that on the issue of, uh, you know, well, during the campaign, a lot of the Jewish settlers thought he was going to build the Trump Towers all over the West Bank, and uh, he was going to endorse, uh, you know, an open check policy on the settlements question. Uh, he was going to um, take other steps that would make him more oblivious to the Palestinian side. But I think since his election on a few issues, um, and by the way, including the Iran nuclear deal, which is not really the topic of our conversation, he's come down on the side of it's better to vigorously enforce it than to scrap it. When he was on the campaign trail, he spoke about scrapping it. Now that he's pre president, and if you look at the, Hillary, at the Tillerson hearings, and the Mattis hearings, he's clearly in the school of better to enforce it vigorously uh, than to scrap it. And that's really where the Israeli national security community is too, I think, the policy community. So he's, he's, moder he's moderated there. On the issue of settlements, uh, he gave an interview to Sheldon Adelson's newspaper. Sheldon Adelson is a, a Las Vegas magnet who is a big supporter of Republican causes, and he runs a free newspaper in Israel that is a big supporter of Netanyahu. And, uh, and uh, he basically 
told that, that paper just days before Netanyahu came to the White House, you know what, I think we've got to cool it on, on settlements. Uh, that's not something you would think Sheldon Adelson was hoping he would say. Um, on the issue of the embassy, he's treading cautiously. Israelis feel, feel, and I think I understand why they see this as an element of you know, historic injustice to say, look, even if the, a peace deal means that East Jerusalem goes to the Palestinians, West Jerusalem is outside of the negotiations, so why not have an embassy in West Jerusalem? After all, the U.S. does business with the Prime Minister's office in West Jerusalem. American presidents, Democratic and Republican, go to West Jerusalem to the Knesset, to the president's residence. There's a prime minister. There's an honorary president. Uh, presidents visit that. The uh, U.S. officials routinely go to the MFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, other government ministries. And so, and here too, though, Jerusalem, though, everything with Jerusalem is not completely rational. And uh, I think Trump has learned, you know, tiptoe on this a bit. And this is the one issue where during the campaign he said, oh, I'm definitely going to move the embassy. Now he's saying, I still want to do it, but I want to be careful. And that maybe contrasts him to where he is in some other uh, pronouncements. But I think that these are all a series that he's more in the, in the zone of where, uh, you know, Democrat and Republican presidents have been. Now, his comment that puts him out of that zone is that since 2001, American presidents, Democrat and Republican, have said they're for a two-state solution. He was speaking, I don't know if it was off the cuff, but uh, he was speaking about the idea of, um, he said, well, one state, two state, whatever. You know, whatever the parties want, we're for it. But I want to do this peace. And here, too, I mean, in more, you know, Trump, the peace processor, I don't think his constituency is pushing him to do peace between Israelis and Palestinians. But he's given now several interviews where he says, I want to do this, I want to do this. Now, maybe part of it is an element, he wrote a book, The Art of the Deal, and he sees this as the ultimate deal. So I don't know if it's a personal challenge that way, but I think here, too, he's more in the zone of Democrats and Republicans. The one that's outside the zone is when he calls for, um, you know, when he said one state, two state, whatever. That is not in the zone. I would like to hope that that was an off-the-cuff thing. He had been briefed, I know, before the meeting and his people that uh, Netanyahu has had difficult politics at home because there are people to his right, uh, Mr. Naftali Bennett and the Jewish Home Party, said, don't reaffirm two states when you're in Washington, or this could lead to a coalition crisis. So Netanyahu tried to navigate this issue, and they were trying to help Netanyahu, so they said, oh, did we say two states? Well, we're, you know, it could be one state. Well, that's something Netanyahu won't say, because one state solution means uh, one person, one vote, that, uh, that would mean that the, you know, that the Palestinians would say, we throw in the towel, we just want to be Israelis, just give us the vote. And I don't think that's something Israel can agree to. Israel's raison d'etre is to be, you know, Jewish state with uh, equal rights for all, uh, you know, and Arabs as well, and to be democratic. Those are the two kind of wings of the aircraft, Jewish, democratic. Uh, if they would go for the one person, one vote, it would be the end of an ethnic state. And I don't think in the Mideast, if you look at all the multi-ethnic states, uh, virtually none of them are at peace. 
Iraq, people said, ah, one state solution, Iraq. And, uh, and the Sunnis and Shia are killing each other. Syria, one state solution. The Sunnis and the Alawites. And I mean, it's one of the worst horrific bloodshed, uh, you know, that we've seen. The Kurds, um, half a million people are dead. Millions are displaced. Lebanon, civil war since 1975. It has not recovered to today. So all these multi-sectarian societies have not worked because ultimately over there in the Mideast, they're not, you know, post nationalist. Their ethnicity, their sense of religion is their primordial loyalty, not to a sense of citizenship. Thank God we as Americans have John Locke and Montesquieu and great philosophers, and we have a deep sense of citizenship, but there it's much more about ethnicity. So the question is, is I think the one-state idea, therefore, is a non-starter, and I hope the president, you know, he might have been trying to help Netanyahu with his politics, but I don't think that was wise in terms of, when Netanyahu was asked about one state, he said, you know, he would not say that. He just said, look, I, I would like to do two states, essentially, but I am, I'm concerned about the border arrangements, which gets me back to the five for five that I was talking about in the beginning. Let me conclude on this one point, because I always try to be operational. Well, what can happen? What is possible? What is a solid single? If you're saying, David, that a grand deal is not doable, um, well, first, it's the continued cooperation on the ground. And if Americans knew the amount that Israelis and Palestinian security services are working day in, day out for stability there on the ground, I think you'd be amazed. And you'd say, I had no idea. I didn't read about that in the LA Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. But that's the quiet work that's happening. They've, just, they've agreed on an electricity agreement. They've agreed on a water agreement. These things were blocked, but the point is there's a convergence that neither the Palestinian Authority nor the Israelis want to see Hamas or jihadi groups come into the West Bank, and that has brought them together. Wraith's going to talk about how that translates regionally, but uh, I would just say on the issue of singles, what is a single? I think a single is something that points to a direction even if we can't get to the destination. It leaves open the door to at least trying to reach two states if we can't do it tomorrow, which we cannot, at least make sure that that option remains open. So what, what's involved? It means to say uh, you don't settle beyond the barrier. Um, it, most of the, what people don't realize is the demographics, is that it depends how you count, but anywhere from 76 to 85% of Israelis live within the West Bank security barrier, which is 8% of the West Bank uh, adjacent to the old pre-67 boundaries. 92% of the West Bank is outside that. And that's where almost all the Palestinians live. And that is where, uh, besides that, um, it's, um, you know, it's where a minority of the settlers live. Now, these are not a irrelevant minority. It's 90,000 people on the wrong side, so to speak. And the Gaza pullout was 8,000. So in terms of order of magnitude, and that's what Secretary Kerry gave his speech at the end of December about this, it's a significant amount of people. But the question is, can you at least say, look, you're not, you, know, you both say you don't want a one-state solution. Um, and you both say you want dignity for the other. Uh, you can't do the five for five. I get that. But can you at least say, you don't settle beyond the barrier? But within the barrier, maybe there's more flexibility for Israel, as long as it doesn't settle outside of it. 
Maybe there will be land swaps, land exchanges. It's <coughs> um, something that uh, the prime minister doesn't reject. He's not publicly endorsed it, but he hasn't rejected it. Um, and, but he has conveyed his views that it's something he could accept. Uh, so to me, I think when you say, what's the solid single? What could Trump do to advance the ball if the Venn diagram doesn't converge on the five for five? I think the, the solid single here is to get each side to do something that is somewhat hard, but points to a direction that they are a partner for the other side. That if the Israelis say, look, we're not building in 92% of the West Bank, um, you know, that would be a direction that say, okay, now I can start envisaging uh, where this thing is going to be. And that there might be land swaps as well. But what could the Palestinians do? Well, this, a lot of people have talked about incitement and the question of what are, what's being taught in the school system. Um, but you have these martyr foundations that if someone stabs an Israeli, their family gets a stipend. And that's wrong. Uh, that does not, that's terror, terrorism pays. Uh, that should not be subsidized. And it's now not directly subsidized through the PA. It goes through the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. It goes from the Palestinian Authority to the PLO uh, to, the, to the families. Now, this, to these foundations. Now, again, thank God there are not as many suicide bombings as there were a few years ago. But we had a rash of stabbings. And um, I was very, I'll end with this, which says, how do you keep at it? You know, you say to hit the single, but what gives you hope that there's a chance and that it's not a false hope? And I'll just conclude by saying, you know, I was, I was um, working, I've been working on trying to do a religious dialogue. I really believe over there, the religious leaders might not have full power, but they have a lot of influence. And we need religious people to be part of a solution and not part of the problem. And to say that violence in the name of religion is wrong. And to say that you need dignity for both sides. Now, um, you know, this is, you say, very pronounced on the Palestinian side, where a lot of people have blown themselves up in the name of religion. Of course, it's intertwined with nationalism. Uh, And uh, there were these wave of 250 stabbers. But there was also, on the Israeli side, Price tag, where there was, you know, people have burned down some orchards and uh, cars and and things like that. And some mosques have been set on fire, too. Uh, Again, by a very uh, small group that has been condemned by others. But for me, it was a point of great satisfaction that I was able to bring together the chief rabbi of Israel. There's actually two chief rabbis, and we've got them to participate at different times. Uh, and their Palestinian counterpart to come to the residence of the president of Israel. And I, I've never told this story, but I, I feel I, should, I could say it here. Um, you know, we got them to come up with a, a very forceful statement against violence in the name of religion. And there was a poignant moment for me was before the ceremony, a few minutes before, the Palestinians came up to me and said, time for prayer. And, uh, and they, you know, I asked someone on Rivlin's staff, uh, the president of Rivlin's staff, I said, Could we, there's a room with a lot of Persian carpets, and would it be okay for, they said, sure, use it for a place of prayer. And so to see Palestinians praying at the, the home of the president of Israel, and then Israelis came, and they daven mincha, as they called it, they said the afternoon prayers, that these, that despite the worst political impasse, 
that these religious leaders found the humanity to pray um, and at the, for Palestinians at the, at the home of the President of Israel and uh, came out with a joint statement. The New York Times wrote a very nice story about it afterwards. You could look it up. But it, uh, to me, gave me hope, like, don't give up. It's too important because we might not be at that destination. We might not be able to hit that home run ball, but we could hit the single, and we don't have the right to give up because the dignity of both sides and their future is at stake. And I really think that despite all extremists on all ends, I really think that the resilience of these people it's that their willingness to live is greater than their enemy's will to die. Gives me hope that we, we just can't give up. Thank you all very, very much. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, first of all, thank you, Richard, very much for that uh, kind introduction. Um, We've been coming here, I think, for seven years. Uh, I look around and I see a lot of familiar faces. Um, so thank you for inviting me. Um, you know, you mentioned the uh, negotiation, the mock negotiations we do. Um, I am so happy that I've come to a point now, I've been doing it for so long, that some of the students we had early on, now we're seeing them become professionals and seeing some of them actually carrying the mantle and moving on uh, with this issue, a couple of the students are now journalists in Israel. Uh, a couple of them are doing uh, law degrees and whatnot. So it's really invigorating and exciting for me to come here and to see that there are still young people who are interested in finding a way forward on uh, this issue. So thank you, Richard. Thank you, Santa Barbara, for giving us this opportunity to kind of rekindle some of our hope. Now... The topic of this uh, evening is new administration, new policy. When we came up with the topic, we actually thought that by this time we will have a sense of the policy. Unfortunately, today, it's very hard to answer this question. It's very hard to answer this question because as of yet, we do not have in place in Washington the policy-making process that we are usually uh, used to in order to kind of identify where policy is going. Every transition, every presidential transition, and I've been, uh, you know, I saw firsthand three of them so far, they're all messy, but this one is especially messy. As of yet, for example, the National Security Council has never had a deputies meeting. What's a deputies meeting is when the deputy secretary of state, defense, uh, etc., come together and formulate the policy options that they put forward to their uh, principals, to the leaders. There hasn't been a policy uh, a, uh, a deputies meeting because there's no deputies. There's no deputy at state, no deputy at uh, DHS, uh, no deputy in so many of these uh, places. And therefore, what we see right now is a complete you know, vagueness in terms of process. The staffing is not clear. We don't know where the staffing is. The process is not in place. And frankly, what we don't know yet is where is the center of gravity for decision making. And there are many models. You know, there are models, for example, when we had uh, Susan Rice as National Security Advisor, the center of gravity was at the National Security Council. There were models under George H.W. Bush where the center of gravity was at the State Department. So there are different models, that, all of which work, but we yet do not know where the model is. And until we have this data, it's very hard to, in any definitive way, speak about new policy for the new administration. Yet, as David mentioned, we have some hints. From what the president himself had said, 
How much they will be turned into policy, we don't know, but at least we know where the president's thinking is on this issue and on the uh, general uh, regional issue. The first hint that we saw was actually in the press conference, the point that David mentioned, the one state, two state. I'm not going to repeat what David said. I believe one state is not an option. It's a non-starter. You have two nationalisms, each of which means Zionism and Palestinian nationalism, each of which needs to be fulfilled in its own state. The damage, though, has been done in some ways. Many in the extreme right and in the extreme left who have been pushing for a one-state agenda, each for their own different reasons, and each with an understanding of a one state, meaning a state of our own, where we deny the others. Um, they've been celebrating over this. And many people have seen it as a change of uh, policy. Though in reality, I actually don't know if it's a, cha a change of policy. Usually, something like this happens. You pick up the phone, you call someone at the White House and say, what did the president means, uh, mean? There's no one to call. So we have to guess. And if we have to guess, I would look at the context. And the president had said other things that make me less concerned. He talked about limiting Israeli settlement activity in the way that David uh, mentioned. And that, to me, fits with the two-state uh, paradigm. He talks about the ultimate deal, the peace deal, and what could po this possibly be about a two-state solution. And his key staff, principal staff, uh, Tillerson at State, Haley at uh, the UN, have all said the two-state solution continues to be the American position. Yet, you know, we have a reason to worry when there is this, and I hope that there will be a clarification. So that's one point of policy that we actually are still having to struggle with. There are two others that David mentioned. Um, one is, uh, this is a president who's not going to give a blank check uh, on terms of settlements. And there will be some sort of an understanding between Israel and the U.S. in terms of what, the settlement, uh, what settlement expansion will be tolerated, what will not be tolerated. These arrangements will not be uh, welcome among the Palestinians per se, because the Palestinians look at all settlements as being uh, illegal. Yet, something like this would actually show, send the signal to the Palestinians and beyond that the U.S. is serious and that Israel is serious. I was a Palestinian official when uh, President Bush reached a similar understanding with Prime Minister Sharon. We protested, we rejected, yet we also understood at that point there's a president who means business and there's a prime minister who you can uh, do business with. So there is a sense that there will be some uh, policy on uh, settlements. As David mentions, the developments on the ground, the security cooperation, etc., while the president did not talk about it, the establishment at state, at defense, all are pushing for a continuation of this. The third element, and the one that uh, I will spend some time on, is what the president had said repeatedly, whether in the press conference with Netanyahu, whether in his interviews uh, with uh, Israel Hayom newspapers and other, is his desire to approach peace not only as a bilateral Palestinian-Israeli issue, but as a regional issue. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting in terms of the context in which it's happening, and it's interesting in terms of the opportunities that it will open up. A few words about the context. The context is the last eight years during the President, President Obama's term, the, the traditional allies of the United States, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, the Gulf Arab states, felt that they are being abandoned by the US. We all heard about the pivot to Asia. The pivot that they saw from there was a pivot to Iran. Rightly or wrongly, that's besides the point, perception is reality when it comes to politics, Regional leaders felt that uh, their interests were being threatened. The U.S. is no longer taking a leading role. 
and Iran, which was a, a threat to both the Gulf and to uh, the Israelis, was gaining from this uh, policy. So what happened? There was a shared threat perception, and with the shared threat perception, shared cooperation happened. The worst kept secret in the Middle East right now is the degree of military, intelligence, security cooperation between Israel and Gulf states and Jordan and Egypt in response to immediate, uh, to perceived shared threats. Iran, ISIS, and uh, the breakdown in uh, Syria. So what we have is actually, counterintuitively maybe, um, the American, the perception of American uh, retreat has created the need for regional cooperation. Now this regional cooperation, however, right now is quite static. What do I mean by that? I mean that at the moment, you have a situation where the Israelis want this uh, cooperation to go public. Yes, it's a, well, it's a badly kept secret, but it's a secret nevertheless. You'll never find an official Arab, except Jordan and Egypt, which have peace treaties with uh, Israel. You will never have them actually come and uh, acknowledge it. So the Israelis want it to be public and want it to be broadened, to go beyond security into economics uh, and the cultural and other kind of uh, engagement. The Arabs are not interested at the moment. They're not interested because, frankly, they're getting what they need from this relationship. What they need is Israeli intelligence and uh, military cooperation, and they're getting it. They're not getting it because Israelis are so charitable. They're getting it because Israel also sees a degree of self-interest. So the Israelis, while they want something bigger, are not willing to rock the boat. And herein comes an interesting opportunity uh, with the president, with uh, Trump. He talks about a regional approach. If you come and tell the Arabs that you, uh, we want you to get involved in the peace process for the sake of the peace process, they will smile and say a polite yes and do nothing about it. Because frankly, for them, the Palestinian issue right now is not key. If, however, we approach the Arabs and the Israelis in the following way. You want us to re-engage? We will re-engage. You want us to confront Iran? We will help you confront Iran. We will provide leadership. But there are things that you need to do as well. A package of things, including uh, often some of these regional players pulling their weight, as it were, and uh, being more active. But also, we can start asking them for certain asks in the peace process. If you go to the Arabs and say, for the sake of uh, us helping you on Iran, you have to help us on the peace process. To the Israelis, for the sake of uh, us reassuming our engagement, you have to make certain decisions on settlements and uh, elsewhere. You create... Um, how shall I say it, a wider canvas in which you can uh, play interesting and, and uh, interplay interests and uh, concerns and uh, desires of all parties. Now, why is that a good thing? It's a good thing because I think the regional engagement can achieve three objectives. Two relating to the Palestinians, one relating to the Israelis. For the Palestinians, there are certain concessions that they will need to make in a peace deal that simply they cannot make on their own. Particularly Jerusalem, and refugees are issues that touch other Arab uh, and Muslim uh, regions. And the Palestinians need the support of these uh, nations. The Palestinians, when they make uh, an accommodation on Jerusalem, need the king of Saudi Arabia and the king of Jordan to be standing in the background saying, we support you, in order to protect their right flank. The, Israel the Palestinians also sometimes need some pressure. Sometimes, uh, particularly given the current dysfunction in Palestinian politics, they need, and I'm, and I'm sorry to use this term, but they need some adult supervision from the Arabs coming and saying, 
stop playing around, stop with your pettiness, and you need to make these kinds of decisions. So pressure and support are needed on the Palestinian side. On the Israeli side, what the Arabs will do, they can present, uh, how shall I say it, they can change the equation in a certain way. Today, and I hear it from so many Israelis, both officials and private citizens that I talk to, a sense that in a peace deal, they think that they're expected to give up tangibles, land, uh, sovereignty, etc., for the sake of an intangible, what is there for the Palestinians to give the Israelis but a promise of peace? And promises are nice, and peace is nice, but uh, you know, how do you cash that one? Bringing in the Arabs will bring another incentive for Israel. For any Israeli prime minister, a photo up with the Saudi, Emirati, Kuwaiti leader, with the whole get up uh, and whatnot, that's political gold. A sense of regional strategic architecture is something that will change Israel's strategic posture. So the Arabs can bring incentive to the Israeli side. So today, to conclude, um, as I look around, there is no policy yet that I can uh, discern. Yet there are indications that if they get translated into policy, could have us a good uh, foundation for starting on a peace process. Whether or not these uh, indications will be translated into, polit into policy will depend ultimately on the managerial style of the president and on the skill and ability to create teams that can work together. Boring stuff, stuff that only interests Washington crowd, but if we don't get the mechanics right, you will not get the result right. In the meantime, I get comfort from the fact that those who thought that with the advent of President Trump, the two-state solution will be over, and suddenly their worst instincts uh, can be uh, materialized, these people right now are disappointed, and for me, that's the first good step. Thank you very much, and looking forward to the conversation. I want to ask a question of both of you, given the scenarios that you've presented, especially with regards to the regional side, and um, the lack of clarity at the moment with regards to what the United States uh, will do or not do. What is the role, say, of a larger regional uh, group like Europe? What would their role be um, in this new situation um, that Israel and Palestine face? Start this one? Sure. Um, look, we saw the limits of uh, European role just a month ago. A month ago, uh, France, wait, last year rather, France started a process. Um, they tried to create a peace process. The idea was the Americans are inward looking, so we will come and uh, fill the vacuum. They couldn't. They simply couldn't. There are things, there are uh, assets that only the U.S. has, and no other country, be it Europe, be it uh, Southeast Asia, etc., can offer. And these assets, are some of them are uh, tangible, our diplomatic uh, power, our economic power, our uh, military power, our ability to underwrite uh, an agreement politically, diplomatically, and militarily. But also there are intangibles. The intangibles that uh, Israel trusts the U.S. and is unwilling to make concessions without uh, the U.S. being uh, involved. All of these things, to me, indicate that uh, Europe and other regional players cannot lead the process. Now, that said, that said one of the mistakes that some often actually is made in uh, American policy vis-a-vis -vis the region, 
is that we sometimes confuse leadership with monopoly. Meaning we occupy the space, we want to run the whole thing together, and we do not actually benefit from the value added some of these uh, supportive players can bring. For example, um, the U.S. provides a degree of comfort for Israel to make uh, concessions. We want the U.S. to provide some tough love for Israel. Well, the Europeans have a great uh, relation with the Palestinians. They should uh, pull their act together and provide some tough love for the Palestinians. I talked about the regional uh, aspect. So the skill right now, the question is not, can we replace the United States? We cannot. But can we create an American policy that takes the value added, the comparative advantage of various players, regional, European, I would even go far and say, uh, in this case, Japan has a role to, uh, to play as well, and bring this in the service of a process and of a strategy that we devise and we lead. Uh, yeah. I... I want to pick up on what Ray said about the tough love. I mean, President Obama gave a speech in 2011 saying that Israel needed to understand about going back to the 67 borders, of course, with land swaps, land exchanges. But there was no corollary to the Obama speech. You needed, at that point, a European to get up and say, the refugees can go to Palestine, but they can't go to Israel. Uh, the Europeans had that clout with the Palestinians the way the U.S. does with the Israelis. That would have been an example of European leadership, in my view. In the long term, if there is a peace deal, there's going to be a lot of need for economic development, and here, too, the Europeans can help. But in the short term, when we talk about the singles, not the home run, I think it's, it's, it's telling the Palestinians about, you know, this is, I know you feel that, you know, we should try maybe a fourth time, although I don't, I don't know if the, if the Palestinians are so keen on a fourth time at this moment of trying, but, you know, they'll be skeptical of a single because they'll say, you know, we, we want, you know, we would like to already have our state, but I think that the Europeans could help out in saying, look, we're, we're, we're heading towards a direction and not the destination. You can't give up on some of your issues either, like the refugee issue right now. So who are you fooling? I mean... You can't do this deal any more than the Israelis can. And I think some candor and saying, here, if, if we're focused on differentiated settlement activity, we are going to back that. We're going to give some you know, political cover in this regard. And maybe to what you know, Raith has been talking about, and, and I've also been a believer in this, in getting the Arab states to try to help out and uh, be more over the table and not just under the table in dealing with Israel and maybe provide some cover f uh, for them to make some um, concessions that they couldn't make in a bilateral context. If the Europeans would also back the Arab states, that would also create a, a broader uh, sense of cover. So I think the European role here is important. It's not maybe as sexy as to say, here, we're at the verge of a grand deal all we need you is to be at the signing ceremony. But I think that there are things that they can do. Um, there are no less than six questions here. Answers, huh? What? Sharp answers. <laughs> no, there, there, are, there are no less than six questions which ask the following, although I'm summarizing all of them. One of them uses this metaphor of fresh eyes looking at a problem like the Israel-Palestine uh, situation. And the question is, can, can fresh eyes really change 
this situation? Or, now I'm going to read one of these six questions, is it possible to reach a peaceful solution without the input of the U.S. President? Are the parties likely to respond to the President's son-in-law? And by the way, that question was asked... I get asked that a lot, actually. I get the Jared Kushner question a lot. Look, I would say here on the good side, the Middle Eastern leaders, they're a very savvy bunch. And they've been at this, they're old hands at this. And they could smell, like from a hundred paces, when an envoy comes to them, has authority or doesn't have authority. So if there's an envoy that has the authority of the President of the United States, that's a good thing. That is a good thing because they'll sense this guy really does speak for the president. If they feel he, the person doesn't speak for the president, they'll just say, this is a waste of time. I'm not going to make a concession to a guy who doesn't have any authority. Uh, why do that? I'll get all the bad, you know, I'll get, it'll hurt me with my own public, and I don't get anything for it with the American president. Here, I think, and I, I even gave the term, I don't know, in the interview with the New York Times, I even used the term, that there is value, or uh, as the Washington Post, there's value to fresh eyes, I think, sometimes. But I, I'm also a believer that experience is important. And I must say, um, I'll say this publicly for the first time, um, I was very disappointed um, with something that happened at the White House two weeks ago when you had a situation that the Secretary of State came to the President and said, this is my choice to be my deputy, and it's a, it's a very, it's not a huge bench of people who really kind of know the, 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 the you know, the six-dimensional chess of this thing. And, uh, you know, this is a guy who does. Doesn't mean we all agree on every single point. Uh, but Tillerson wanted him as his deputy. Uh, the White House Chief of Staff, Priebus, wanted him. The... Um, Jared Kushner, the son-in-law, wanted him. Uh, Democrats said nice things about him. People served in Democratic administrations. I don't know if it mattered or people, Palestinians. Wraith said something nice in the Washington Post. I said something nice about him in the Washington Post. Dennis Ross said something nice about him in the New York Times. Martin Indyk said something nice about him. And, and I'm not saying that had any weight, uh, or it should, but he had a good meeting with the president. Uh, but they found something that he said during the campaign uh, that was not supportive of the president. Now, as far as I know, Kellyanne Conway uh, used to work for Cruz. Uh, I think DeVos, uh, who's the Secretary of Education, uh, was not always on Team Trump. I think uh, Nikki Haley, uh, when she was governor of North Carolina. She ran against him. Uh, right? Uh, she ran against him. But, you know, you're the president now. And you've got to somehow marry the fresh eyes with a, you know, somebody who has some real wisdom and, um, and has experience. Because these leaders, as I said before, they live the conflict. And they will flick you away if you don't know this conflict as well as they do. And that you don't get with fresh eyes. So I think the key is to marry the fresh eyes with, with a good head. Um, and of course, a good heart. 
But um, I think it was disappointing that uh, the candidate, this guy, Elliot Abrams, uh, who has that experience, was tossed aside because of something that uh, one White House staffer brought against him that he, that he said over a year ago. When other people have said things over a year ago are now part of the team. So there's a varying standard that's disappointing. Look, I mean, uh, one of the disadvantages of doing so many of things, these things together is that we end, end up kind of channeling one another. So I agree with David um, in, on two points, and let me maybe take a different angle. The first is, yes, uh, the Middle East, uh, you know how to smell uh, how much they have support, and if the envoy have support, you take them seriously. If not, you don't. And even if you can't smell, what you do is you create a crisis to see if they have a... I've done it. Israelis have done it. You know, it could be small crisis, big crisis. You want to test. You want to test. And uh, in a sense, having someone so close to the uh, president in a region where familiar relations matter will send a very strong message. That said, and this is one of my pet peeves, as it were, you know, diplomacy is not for amateurs. It's actually a profession. You know, there are lawyers, doctors, uh, professionals here. I would like to think that uh, what I've been doing for the last 30 years uh, is a profession. And so this, this combination of someone who has the fresh approach, and frankly, you know, someone who is unknown in the region is good, but you have to have, he has to have a team that knows how to run the process. And running the process is not only about running the region. That's often the easier part of the job of a, an American peace envoy. Running the bureaucracy and engaging the bureaucracy in Washington is a monumental task. Someone who can bring together state, defense, White House, different constituencies, Congress is very important in this. So you need someone who knows the mechanics of how do you uh, coordinate government, how do you manage government, how do you can make sure that my policy as an envoy does not get undermined by the policy of the Secretary of Defense or not. These are things that you just don't know instinctively. These are things that require experience. So from my perspective, I have no issue whatsoever with the president appointing someone close to him who has no experience as long as there is a team and a serious team and a team that's taken seriously that is there to enable that this person can take these value added that he brings, the sense of trust from the president, and turn them into effective policy. The road to hell is covered with good intentions. The way to avoid them is to have skill in knowing how to navigate the channels. Um, that's very good. Thank you. Um, so I, I want to ask one last question. Um, and I think you have put this issue to rest, but I think it would be wise for us to perhaps conclude our discussion by my asking you to respond to it, because several people ask. And that is, um, why won't the one-state solution work? I mean, that's what is asked uh, yeah. um, by several of sure. our, our audience members. You know, I mean, let me take this uh, first, maybe. Um, I often get asked this question, particularly in the United States, and there is a reason for this. Our American nationalism is a very unique nationalism. We are a non-ethnic nationalist country. We are a country whose nationalism is about an idea, not about an ethnicity, which is great. I love it. I mean, that's why I immigrated here. However, we have to remember, we are the exception to the rule. The world is still organized around ethnic nationalisms. And if you don't believe me, look at Europe today. Uh, these are very strong 
basic uh, tenets of how the international system is organized. The idea of the nation state, every people have the right to self-expression through statehood, is still the cornerstone of the international legal and political system that we have right now. So you want to zoom in. What do we have in historic Palestine between the river and the sea? We have two nationalisms. What is, what is Zionism? Zionism is, the, is Jewish nationalism. It's the idea that the Jewish people need to express themselves through a, their own Jewish state. That's what Israel is about. And what do the Palestinians want? They want the exact same thing, the expression of their own nationalism through their own state. That's why the Palestinians are not happy being citizens in Jordan, even though you know, they have it pretty good there. They want their own state. And therefore, if you don't have a two-state solution, what do you end up having? One of two things. Either a continued domination of Israel on the Palestinians via occupation, which is not something that I, and frankly for that matter most Israelis that I know, uh, want. Or you can have, you know, this one state. Now this one state wouldn't be a pretty, you know, I don't know, the Netherlands, everyone's happy, tall, and uh, enjoying chocolate. Uh, this will be in a, a state whereby two groups of people would want to define the state as their own. Do you think after this one state, Zionism will disappear? The Jewish population in Israel will want to define the state as a Jewish state. Yes, maybe with the other minorities, but a Jewish state. The Palestinians will not be happy. They will want to uh, uh, define the new state as a Palestinian state, maybe with a Jewish minority. And so what you end up with is transforming this from a political uh, struggle into a civil war. So from my perspective, the idea of one state is ahistorical, non-contextual, in the sense that it ignores the very, very strong, very effective, as of yet very uh, operative concept of nationalism. The only way you can do it, by the way, one last thought here. It's not like we reached the two-state solution conclusion because suddenly we woke up, uh, Arafat woke up and Rabin woke up and realized, damn, we had it wrong all along and the epiphany and we have to have a two-state solution. No, no, no. Both sides, any of you here who followed the history, have tried everything to destroy the other side, militarily, diplomatically, and at some point realize you can't do it. And you have with a two-state solution. And so to me, any other thing is a continuation of the conflict, and only the two-state solution, imperfect as it is, would be the way forward. We, we agree. Um, I'll add something that the word one-state solution means totally different things to different people. When the settlers say one-state solution, they mean Israel is sovereign over Israel, sovereign Israel, and the entire West Bank. When they say one state, they mean that they control everything. That's what they mean by one state. When you see kind of more uh, left-wing intellectuals in Europe and maybe here and in academia talking about one state, they're talking about a binational state. So just know that the term means totally different things to different people. That, you know, you could be at a cocktail party, I don't know, the settler and a, and a European academic will be at a cocktail party, but they will both say, are you for one state? I'm for one state. But what do they mean by one state? They mean totally opposite things. And uh, this should be clear. And this is, you know, what Ray said is what I said in my remarks saying about there is no multi-sectarian state in the Middle East virtually at peace. The ones that have been a wreck are Syria, Iraq, Lebanon. What do they all have in common? That they were efforts to submerge sectarianism and nationalism kind of under a one-state rubric. And they don't have the idea of citizenship. And often 
in Iraq, what you're seeing is that Sunnis don't want to die for what they think is Shia nationalism, uh, you know, especially Maliki in the last government that was very clear. Now, I said that we're blessed that we had Montesquieu and Locke and we have a sense of citizenship, but nationalism will not go away. I mean, tell me when India and Pakistan are going to reunite and uh, no ethnic uh, states there. Um, and even Europe, which many people thought was post-nationalist, might be with Brexit and votes in other states that were not post-nationalist. And uh, who knows what Le Pen is going to happen in France and if Merkel is going to lose in Germany. There's so many things at play. And I, I don't say this in a, in a way that's, you know, that I'm, I'm happy about it at all, by the way. I'm very worried about it. But in, it teaches me that when I see the bloodshed, that all this sectarianism and this nationalism was submerged in these places, and yet it just, it just intensified the conflict inward. And you have civil wars in all these societies, in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. And they've been going on for a long time. So I'm, 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 I just don't believe in it. I just don't believe. And, and Netanyahu was interesting at that press conference. Basically, when Trump said, oh, one state, two state, whatever, he didn't say that. He knows what one state means. He knows that means it will be um, something that he cannot accept either. And he would rather accept the two state thing, but make the argument about security arrangements on the Jordan Valley and the like. That, that's a different conversation. Um, and, uh, but I think that unless that these two nationalisms coexist side by side, you know, the, it, one state will just intensify the bloodshed in a way that will make things worse. I'm, I wish I, I, I didn't think that. And I wish, you know, if there was a common language, they don't even speak the same language. They don't even have common experiences. They're traumatized by terrorism and occupation. And I'm not making moral equivalences, but these things mean they each nationalism needs its own set of expression. And I, I you know, that's why I don't, I don't believe Israel sees one state solution as the elimination of Israel and an effort to destroy Israel. And I, and I, you know, whatever the intent, and maybe the intent by some of the one staters isn't so malevolent, but I just, I, I just don't believe it can work. Um, I had a, a colleague, a very close colleague, uh, uh, a Scott, actually, by the name of Ninian Smart. And uh, if he were still alive, I think he would say, you just demonstrated one of the most central components of my analysis of, of religion, and that is the most powerful new modern religion is nationalism. And it can't be submerged very easily. Um, David and Wraith, it's been absolutely um, wonderful to have you again in Santa Barbara and we as a community and a campus are deeply grateful to you and we can't wait until you return again next year. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.